0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts.
1: Thanks for joining us again today for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Now, as our title indicates, Is Class Warfare Real? Charles and I will tackle this question. However, our listeners may consider the route we take to get there a bit circuitous. So I'm going to ask you to hang in there with us. I was reading an article written in 1970 by R.J. Rushdoony in volume two of the compilation volumes of his Chalcedon reports entitled Faith and Action. The title of the essay the silent majority and decapitalization made me smile as I'm sure it did you, Charles, because you and I were both young people, high schoolers, or just out of high school when the term silent majority came into the political parlance. Rush Dooney calls the silent majority idea a myth, which, believe me, will shock many conservative Christians. So, before we get going, explain to those who might not be familiar with the term what the silent majority is and who the silent majority was.
0: Well, to start with the latter part, if uh, if I remember correctly, and let's uh, give an unnecessary salute to uh, Timothy Leary, who once said, anybody who says they remember the 60s weren't really there. Um, <laughs> as I recall, it was Richard Nixon, I think, in one of his, maybe the the 68 campaign or maybe it was 72 who used that term to describe the vast majority of conservative Americans who would turn out in droves to vote for him or whatever it was that, you know, there, there were a lot of loud minority hippies, left-winger, anti-Vietnam people and all that during those days. And they were the ones getting the publicity and then making the noise. And that term, as he used it as best as I recall, was a description of the overwhelming majority of good Christian conservative, you know, people who don't go in for all of that stuff and wave the flag and, and all the rest of it. And uh, implied in that, and this is where uh, I think it intersects well with what, doc- what Dr. Rostini was writing about, is the um, th- the implied moral superiority of the silent majority.
1: Right. And he points out in the article that along with the silent majority, there was a vocal minority and it was sort of easy to point fingers because the various groups where they were student protesters, uh, anti Vietnam war protesters, communists or whatever, everybody had their share of things that you could point to as being wrong. But this, um, this split was that the vocal minority is bad, silent majority, good. And yet Rush Dooney called both of those designations a myth. Why did he call it a myth?
0: Well, because it, it avoids the foundational issue of the corrupt nature, the, the corruption of human nature, and our, our bent towards sin and rebellion against God's law. You know, I, I, I don't want to miss this opportunity to, to quote something he said in that article uh, because it just jumped off the page in, in its simplicity, but its deep wisdom. And talking about, well, you could apply this to, to both, but the, the silent majority or the, the, the loud minority. He said, there is neither absolution nor grace in confessing other people's sins. And yet this is the essence of the myth of the silent majority. That struck me as (laughs) very insightful.
1: So don't we have that today? We may not use those terms, vocal minority, silent majority, but it's very easy once you have an opposition group to demonize them and then absolutize yourself as being righteous. And I see that played out in conservative media and even sometimes in sermons at churches that want to basically pat ourselves on the back and say, attaboy, those bad people are the ones we're combating.
0: Yeah, and as I was reading this article, it reminded me, uh, um, along the lines of what you're talking about, of something that I had read many years ago by the British philosopher and agnostic Bertrand Russell. He wrote an essay called The Superior Virtue of the Oppressed. And which he was arguing in a similar way, but perhaps, you know, at a different angle, that many people assume that because a group of people have been terribly or even horribly oppressed by another group of people, that the oppressed people, by by default, have superior moral virtues. And he argued in that article that that absolutely is not the case. Just because somebody's been mistreated, that doesn't mean they're good people. That doesn't mean they're godly, we would say. And I think, you know, as... Dr. Rasduni's article pointed out that you know it, it, it's it's sort of the the effort to create the idea of the other above whom we are superior, and you, the evil minority, the good majority who are silent, but they will stand up and roar at some point. But you know where he goes with this, is, in in a, part part of the 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 unique blessing of Dr. Rustuni's writings and ministry was the vast breadth of reading that he did and his familiarity with all kinds of uh, writings and articles and and books and he references a book in this um article that he wrote by an author named Banfield and it's uh, called The Unheavenly City The Nature and Future of Our Urban Crisis which also was written in 1970 And Banfield, and I think it's fair to say that Dr. Rush Dooney tracks very well with what Banfield was arguing in that book in terms of, you know, who constitutes one group or the other, but he goes about it from the standpoint of class, upper class, middle class, working class, and lower class. But the insight that was gained from that man's book and what Dr. Rush Dooney is pointing out is that we, by definition, always want to limit those those definitions by economics by financial right. status
1: or by marxist philosophy
0: yes yes
1: if you don't mind before we get into banfield's thesis i'd like to make another observation that i think will help our listeners understand how rush goes from talking about silent majority and vocal minorities to discussing class and there's a paragraph in this essay and I, I would like to read it because part of it is a quote from a prayer um, from the General Confession. And this is the the paragraph from the article. But the myth of both silent majority and vocal minority is anti-Christian to the core in that it denies the fact of sin. According to the Bible, man's problem is sin. And in every race, class, and group, sin is the central problem. Our problem today is that the vocal minorities and the silent majorities all over the world are rebellious against God and his laws, so that we need to pray from our hearts in the words of the general confession. And I've prayed this prayer at times when churches I've attended have used it. And to be honest with you, Charles, sometimes I take it for granted when you say a prayer that's already formulated, but it's very profound in its formulation. And I think it's something that Rush pointing out should be our prayer. And it goes like this. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. And then he makes the point, there's neither absolution nor grace, as you put it, in confessing other people's sins. And yet, if we don't get to the heart of the matter, if we don't look at things biblically, we're left in a uh, frenzy of misdiagnosis and finger pointing. So how does all that combat the fact that every group may have legitimate claims against the other that they're criticizing? And Rushduty again makes the point, and this is something that's true in health as well, for illness or subversion to take place the terrain as to where it's operating has to be vulnerable. So if people are not grounded in scripture, if the terrain of their life is not fully dedicated to God's word, then conspiracies, subversions, real attacks can take root. And that's true of illness as well. Some people can be exposed to a virus or a bacteria and have no or mild reaction, and other people can have a severe one. So Banfield's book, which Rush Dooney spends some time talking about, gives a new perspective, I think, and I think you'll agree, Charles, that maybe we've been looking at things from a wrong perspective, and an infusion of biblical thought will help us get onto the better track.
0: Yeah, and just to follow up with that, he states in the article that Banfield uh, identifies class status in this way, individual's orientation toward the future. There's a two-factor nature of that. One, the ability to imagine a future. And then two, the ability to discipline yourself, to sacrifice the present for the future. Or if there's something, some goal you want that will bring you some kind of satisfaction, then you're willing to work toward it and not have to have it instantaneously or have it at this moment. And... Again, you can see how an eschatology of victory, a recognition that God moves in in a, in a developing fashion through history and through time to bring about the expansion and victory of his kingdom, as opposed to, say, the dispensational view, which everything happens by cat- catastrophe and cataclysm, you know, instantaneously. That this is a very important factor, and it goes well with the perspective of what God's law word teaches us. And so... We move from that to to recognize that what defines a person as upper class or lower class is not so much what their, their bank account says, uh, because as he points out, there have been therefore many people who are financially wealthy, but who are in effect low class or lower class because they have no vision for the future. They have no goal or purpose in their lives. Now, he brings around the discussion, which would have been very, very relevant at the time. Uh, about existentialism and how that really is a using these definitions a lower class philosophy because it, it basically insists on the the eternal now, everything is in the in the present moment and the future is this un, unknown distant thing that we don't really have any control over. What we have control over is the the immediate moment and my immediate needs, my immediate desires, however that's that's uh, defined and so that gives us a vehicle to talk about as he did about okay well if, if somebody is called lower class and it doesn't matter where their financial status is to some extent well then what about people who are what we've traditionally understood as lower class people who are in in poverty then and he makes the statement that outside the lower classes. When poverty occurs, it is, and to quote, I think he's quoting Banfield here, the result of external circumstances, death of the breadwinner, illness, involuntary unemployment, or, or such as that. And then Dr. Rushduni states, even when severe, such poverty is not squalid or degrading because standards are maintained. You know, I think that's the main point: is that okay? I may not have as much money in the bank as the next guy, and I may have more than some others, but the question is. How do I see myself? What am I doing in terms of who I am in relation to Almighty God and his covenant and his plan for his people?
1: He makes the uh, stunning statement that existentialism is lower class living converted into a philosophy. Yes. And and when you think about it, if you're living for the moment, there's no reason to save. There's no reason to be patient in your endeavors. And if we go back to the title, The Silent Majority and Decapitalization, then there's no reason to capitalize for the future. In other words, you don't really see a future, at least one that you would be encouraged to move into. And so you stop having believers who claim to believe the Bible. They no longer tithe, create tithing agencies to improve the status quo without having to see it accomplished in 30 minutes, 60 minutes, or even a year or two. In other words, if the victory that the Bible asserts is something you believe to be true, then it doesn't depend on whether or not you see it in your lifetime. It depends on your participating in the kingdom of God as you're called, when you're called, so that this vision isn't using the standards of the world, such as how many degrees I have, what neighborhood I live in, as you put it, what is in my bank account or what my investment portfolio looks like. And so in a very real sense, the apostles, the first century Christians, certainly were not in the highest economic level, but would we not say they were the upper class?
0: Yes, and many, many centuries removed from the time of the earliest Christians, there were other Christians, uh, most notably those who uh, came to this country from Great Britain and other parts of Europe in the early history of our nation, who had a future vision such as that, and that's why they came here. But I have used this story in sermons before. Some of our listeners may have heard it in other places, I don't know, but it's sort of a generic story about a a group of the pilgrims who came and settled in the area of the northeastern United States and, you know, spent a lot of time uh, clearing the forest and setting up a city, a, a town, I should say. And after a period of time, they then moved to establish a local city government, you know, with a mayor and magistrates and all, you know, according to more or less biblical principles. And then after that, they decided to make Roads that could be easily traveled for the people who live there. And then somebody suggested, well, you know, if we, if we can just push the boundaries about 10 miles into the wilderness, uh, you know, we, we could make more progress. And, and it was like, why would you want to do that? Nobody needs to go out there. And so here's a group of people who traveled an entire ocean to get to a new world and, and with a vision of what God was calling them to do. Who, once they'd been there for a while, they couldn't see five miles outside of town. They had lost that vision, in other words. And as Dr. Roschini points out in the article, and as you sort of alluded to, if you have that future orientation, it leads to people that, to use the term he used, capitalizing a civilization. It working in terms of a goal and foregoing present pleasures to achieve that that future. And you, you can see, at least I can, you can, uh, hopefully most of our listeners can. If, if not, then you can take our word for it. There's been this seismic shift in the orientation of people in these United States, especially, from something like that kind of future-oriented goal to the me now, I, the, the me generation, I've got to have it now, in instantaneous gratification. And the technocratic developments of the present time certainly have, if anything, accelerated that.
1: And we become a nation and people as consumers rather than producers. And he makes the point that public schools, even secular private schools, breed into their students' existentialism. So think of all the fear-mongering that's done. We have fear of COVID. We have fear of climate change. We have fear of meteors and asteroids crashing into the earth. Fear, fear, fear. A fearful people is not a future-oriented people, a fearful people, even if they don't like the status quo, oftentimes want to preserve the status quo. And in commenting about the vocal minority, and I believe they're probably Christians who would put themselves in the category of vocal minority, and maybe lots of churches would say, well, we don't get a lot of press, we're the silent majority. Rajduni points out that both groups violate God's law regularly. And don't examine themselves in terms of that. So they're deeply in debt. They have no problem with fiat currency. They tolerate laws and practices which are anathema to God and say, oh, well, that's just the way it is. So in a very real sense, they become irrelevant in terms of the forward movement of the kingdom because instead of seeing the possibilities of success, All they see are the giants. So they're not like David who says, who is this heathen Who or this uncircumcised one who dares to blaspheme against God? They look at him as he's a giant. Nobody can take him. And I think there's too many people who are looking at it that way. And every new news report that says something terrible, they're going to raise taxes, we're going to have a war with this country, whatever it is, they don't recognize that it only penetrates their psyche. Because they're oriented as existentialists. And yeah, I think
0: maybe we need to clarify the the issue of, okay, people aren't future oriented. Somebody may say, well, uh, wait a minute. That's all I've been hearing about for the past couple of years is how, as we move into the future, we need to change the way we do medicine. We need a great reset. Apparently, there's quite a few people in the upper echelons, again, using the the class data from a financial standpoint, who've thought a lot about the future, and they want to unfold it according to their plan. So I think it'd be helpful to point out that what we're talking about is in terms of God's kingdom. Yes, uh, the people who hate that kingdom and who march according to Satan's orders, yes, they have a plan for the future. The problem is, apart from it creating a hellish nightmare for all but a few, but even for those who want to foist it on the rest of us, it is a suicide mission because that type of existential-based future orientation is a corruption of the real thing. And because it's not founded on the law of God, it's not founded in a root of a heart and a life that's been changed by the righteous power of God's spirit, it is humanistic to the core and it always leads to some horrific, dystopian, terrifying scene that implodes on the very people who think that they're going to gain by um, pr- promoting it. And uh, the, the, the wording that he uses here is that instead of people who are motivated, uh, paraphrasing, by biblical principles who are future-oriented, he says, instead, dreamers who are basically lower class, in the sense we've been talking about, who believe that political power can convert today into tomorrow are in charge. One of the things that I, I read this article Uh, And I had not read this before until you brought it to my attention. I'm sitting here shaking my head. This is unbelievably prescient. How how this man, writing in 1970, and we'll get to some of the other stuff that he says here in terms of a prescription about where we need to go. I mean, it's the same thing a lot of Christians have realized about parallel economies and uh, parallel societies. I've, I've recently had a discussion. Uh, with a number of people about, okay, well, what do we do now? You know, do we elect this guy? Do we elect that person? You know, what's the movement forward? And so we find that there is this cleavage between those who are thinking in terms of a genuine biblical perspective on the future versus those who think that if we just simply do things more intensely that we've always done, then we can go back to the way things were two years ago, twenty years ago, a hundred years ago, and that everything will be fine. As I understand what Doctor Rustini wrote here in 1970, let's emphasize that again. Now we're far past that, and it's not what God expects of us in terms of fulfilling the duties He given to His people.
1: In that light, okay, it's important for us to be kingdom oriented, and then to evaluate modern situations in terms of. Obedience or disobedience to the Bible. And so he makes this uh, statement, which maybe will anger some, I don't know, but I think it's, as you pointed out, very revelatory because now we're looking at it 52 years later. Okay. He says, when men become existentialist, it leaves it to the women to provide any future orientation that society has. Now think about that for a moment. When men don't do what they're supposed to do under God, then somebody picks up the slack and that's women. Now, is he saying that women do it properly, that women do it in a godly fashion? What he's saying is there's going to be a vacuum and somebody's going to fill it. And so from a woman's point of view, not looking at God's law as the basis on her decisions, if you're pregnant and and you don't want to be pregnant because it could limit your financial future, abortion seems right. If you're long ago given up on the family or marriage as a way to protect and cover you and even assert that you don't need protection and covering, then feminism will lead to this conflict of interest between the men and women. So men and women are fighting over jobs. Men and women are fighting over political power. And so the nature of not doing what you're supposed to be doing, as God has ordained men to do, is part of what creates the situation that people complain about. So I'm a little bit weary of people talking about the feminists and, oh, look at the, what feminism has done to the church and look what feminism has done to our society, when an actual fact, going back to this idea of the terrain, if the terrain was healthy, something like feminism or marxism or existentialism would never take hold but when the church stopped preaching the full counsel of god and decided they wanted to get along with people rather than represent god this opened the door to what we're seeing so it took a long time to get here when people are impatient and saying well i'm doing all this stuff i'm homeschooling my children i'm i'm you know seeking after things that are godly but nothing's changing Yes, something is changing, but you need a perspective.
0: You know, it's really uh, amazing to me, as you pointed out, 52 years ago is when he wrote this. And especially in this area where you're referring to now about uh, the the place that women have come into because, you know, the men are woefully lacking in future orientation, if not devoid of it. I occasionally follow the commentary of an African-American man who has his own TV show on a conservative network. And he has lately been commenting on some of the problems going on in the African-American community and like with this, you know, police killing this young man a few weeks ago and some of these other sort of things that have been happening. And one of the things he said very loudly and clearly, and he's taken a lot of hits for it is that it has to do with the place of black women in the family and, the way that they're exercising their influence, and here Dr. Dooney said something exactly like that <laughs> in nineteen seventy that you know th- th- this problem exists in in that culture as well in the african American family, and here's and I don't know that the guy I'm referring to has ever read Rush Dooney. He's probably yeah. never heard of him for all I know,
1: right, so Rush Dooney makes this observation, and I think this is where the the whole essay really impacted me. He says. The new barbarians are not in the slums. He says they're running the universities, businesses, factories, often the church and the home. When Rome fell because of the barbarians, again, there was no structure that could combat it. Well, we don't have to worry about it being, quite frankly, people coming from outside the country invading our borders. Not that that's not a serious thing. But why are they able to do this? Why do people seem to be so incompetent and impotent at stopping something that is noticeably wrong? Well, because the universities, businesses, and all the political sphere has basically established this existential point of view so that now a biblical view is on the periphery and what people have to comment on is the status quo. So imagine looking at those who run universities, the media, the political arena, by and large, are barbarians. Now, what are you going to do?
0: Yes. And one of the things that he also talks about in that regard is how this lower class existential mentality is so dominant now for the reasons that you just outlined and what that requires of us in terms of moving forward you know, how do we, how do we deal with the fact that we've had at least one or two generations impact our culture and society with these ideas that have produced where we are now? And so, you know, he, he talks about some things that, and we can get into this in just a second, but I'm, I'm reminded of something, of an article that I, and a book I've been reading about the, uh, the rising influence of the Christian faith in ancient Rome, and especially in the the decade of AD 300 to AD or the century between AD 300 and AD 400 which saw among other things the conversion of Constantine and the proclamation of the legality and the uh, the official status of Christianity in the Roman Empire and what this man outlines is that you had a, a group of people who were young people uh, early adults who were born and lived in the first part of that century who were thoroughly pagan But there was was already progress starting to be made toward the Christianization of the empire. And to them, it was just a blip on the radar screen. But then you have these other people who were sort of in the middle who maybe were also born and raised pagan, but they were also very much aware that there was this growing influence of Christianity. And then by the latter part of that century – you, you had everything had been completely changed with Constantine's conversion and the proclamation of uh, the empire as Christian. The point he, One of the points he makes is that the people in that first segment, they began to view with some alarm the, the way things were developing and that their pagan ways were slowly but surely being shoved aside. But they thought, you know what, the next emperor will change this. Uh, at some point, these crazy people will go away and we'll get back to how things used to be. But see, what they didn't bank on is the fact that anyone who would have been involved in moving the empire back to its pagan roots were gone. Either they had died off or, by God's grace, they had become Christian. So there was nothing there to facilitate this going back, you know, to the good old days. The Lord was doing a work and moving it forward. Yeah, okay, we can debate about just how Christian the empire was and Constantine and all the rest of it. But the point is, it was the dismantling of a pagan empire and its system by God's providential action. And so one of the things, one of the main things that Dr. Rustini gets to in this article is the fact that what we're dealing with now, and even what he was talking about in 1970, uh, didn't just happen overnight. It's been around for a while. It took time to get from, say, the uh, the pernicious influence of John Dewey and Horace Mann and the government school system and the dismantling of the Christian family, the uh, the enfranchising of women into the workplace so they could be taxed just like the men and, you know, the, the destruction of the nuclear family and all the rest of it to where we were in 1970 and especially to where we are today. That didn't happen overnight. Right. And so um, m- maybe if you're ready, you can say something about what he's suggesting about where we might go from
1: here. His solution is recapitalization and reconstruction. Recapitalization involving investing in things that are godly and that, although they may start small, can grow. Well, we saw this happen with Christian schools and homeschooling. Back when I started homeschooling my children in the early 80s, homeschooling wasn't all that known or popular. Now, you'd be hard-pressed for people not to know anything about it. And more than not, people are saying things like, oh, I totally respect a person who homeschools. The public schools are terrible. So by capitalizing Christian schools and families making the decision that two incomes may be less important than raising godly children. So that's an example of recapitalizing an effort and then reconstructing. And it's happening in business societies. It's happening in medicine, especially with the lies and deceptions that had been propagated through masking and vaccinations and everything else, you have people saying no more. He even proposes back then insurance companies that will insure Christian businesses and not force them to support things they disagree with. And yet we have it now with Samaritan Ministries or MediShare. All these things happened and we had people who truly moved from lower class, middle class, mentality into or even the working class because, you know, you have to work to support your family, but having a greater vision so that they became the upper class. So when I meet fellow homeschoolers or I meet doctors who are willing to say, okay, you're going to take away my license, I'll fight you tooth and nail, or churches that are fighting because their county or government said you can't be open and they said, yes, we'll still be open. These are the upper class people. These are the people we should be supporting and not be dismayed over all the obvious failures of humanism, And keep our eyes off that and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus.
0: Yes. And he not only talked about uh, new professional associations like insurance companies and things of that nature, he actually mentions new medical associations, new institutions, schools, churches, agencies, and new medical associations standing in terms of of biblical principles. Again, a powerfully present article written 52 years ago. And um, I I think, too that this is something that we already hear people talking about i can think of one prominent christian individual who has started his own social media company mm-hmm. and it's very good and it's very popular he and another a, a pastor friend of his have written a book about you know what it means to have a christian nation and you and i've talked about this dr rushdney was talking about this stuff 50 years ago right um and so now we're we're grateful that people are getting on board and recognizing that if you're following the same guidelines, which are biblical guidelines, then we're going to arrive at the same place. But the problem is, there's still a lot of people. They can't quite get outside of that existential box and think about, okay, we've got to get beyond electing this guy immediately for the next election because of X, Y, and Z.
1: Yeah,
0: I, I think what we're looking at, and I think what he's talking about in this article, is something that's going to require a lot more of us than that, and it's going to take a lot more outside-the-box thinking to envision and move forward Uh, toward a genuinely Christian society.
1: So going back to our question, is class warfare real? Absolutely. The lower class does not want the upper class to succeed, and the upper class, based on the paradigms Banfield and Rush Dooney talk about, doesn't want to see the lower class succeed. So it's not like there won't be conflict. Of course there'll be conflict, but we have to remember Jesus' words that greater is he that's in us he that's in the world. And in terms of how we're going to have people move forward, because a lot of people say, I want that social mobility. I want to move from lower class thinking to upper class thinking. How do I do it? Well, simply put, it begins and ends with faith and obedience. Faith and obedience to whom and to what? Well, if you don't know biblical law, you will have no idea whether to support any given practice. So today, and I don't know if um, you saw this, Charles, but in Massachusetts, a law has been proposed that prisoners can have their sentences reduced if they donate their organs.
0: Yes, I saw that.
1: And I will know people will be like, oh my gosh, can you believe that? Well, first of all, have they asked themselves the question, is the prison system biblical? Before we start arguing whether or not prisoners should trade their liver or their kidneys for something else, we should ask ourselves the question, is this whole system godly or not? And then ask the question, if the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel, might it encourage more people to be incarcerated so that now the people, obviously, there are some people who feel like they need organs, and we don't have enough of them. So instead of repenting and, you know, preparing yourself to meet your maker, what we've got to do is find new sources for these organs. And so, just the whole effort is revelatory of the death wish and the lower class mentality of those who push for it. The same way that people would look at abortion or euthanasia or all sorts of things as a way to reduce the population. Why do they want the population reduced? Obviously they're afraid of some sort of scarcity. You know, they may just hate people. Okay. But they're probably looking to preserve themselves. So faith and obedience is the ticket. And for people who um, are already doing it, Intensify it. In other words, make sure you become expert in biblical law. Make sure your children are being taught that. Make sure those who come to you in your church groups or whatever, that you're prepared to teach them and be prepared to let them know that one or two steps in the direction of righteousness are rewarded by God. No, in their lifetime they may not see an end to abortion they may not see an end to the prison system they may not see an end to corruption in the political sphere but if you don't have the vision that says it can be accomplished because god's victory is sure then you're not going to be participating in the kingdom of god the way god wants us to
0: and i think what you just said is very characteristic of a lot of the i'll use the phrase mainstream conservative media that many, many evangelical Christian types uh, listen to. It's that it's starting point for critiquing what it sees as the highly problematic liberal tendencies or woke tendencies in society. The starting point of that conservative critique is an implicit affirmation of the unbiblical nature of the way things are, like with the prison system. Like you said, the, the, the starting point is not, okay, what about this with the organs and all that? The starting point is, Is this whole system biblical or not? And, you know, it's interesting when you start talking about this to folks, they look at you cross-eyed like, are you kidding? Uh, The Bible? I mean, uh, wait a minute. Aren't we Christians? Uh, Isn't the Bible meant to be for all areas of life? Well, maybe not in the theology of a lot of people who call themselves Christians. But if your starting point is uh, a shifting sand foundation that can't survive – and will lead, like you said, to a culture of death, as it already has and continues to, then you're never going to get to the right place, and you're never going to solve the problem. One of the things that I like very much about the way that he brings to a close this article is that you know he he asks the question, well, where do you stand right now? I mean, he gets real personal in this article. It's amazing how he does this. He says, well, you can join with the lower classes, and you can eat and drink and be merry, and tomorrow you die. And he says, it's really all up to you you are the one who's going to have to do this to quote him if a future oriented upper class society is to be established you will have to do it and i don't think that he would disagree with that the the doing of it is not repeating the same process the same staying on the same treadmill we've been on for the past 50 years
1: right and to me that gives incredible hope because 52 years ago he wrote this and i can see the evidence of people having listened back then. I wasn't reading him in 1970, but somebody was. And those people planted seeds, other people watered them, and then the stems came up, the leaves came out, and things flowered. We have a lot of warriors today, and I've had the pleasure of interviewing a number of them who are all out committed to obeying God and letting him create the results. They're not concerned as much with the outcomes, although they are working toward an outcome, but they recognize that the kingdom of God advances. It goes up, it goes down, it goes up. But if you did a chart, you know, those charts that you always have to do in school to learn how to see the progression of things, that mustard seed is growing. The tree is big. That's why in many countries around the world, Christianity is the enemy because they recognize, sometimes more than Christians themselves, the potency of the kingdom of God, and it's being fueled by the law of God.
0: Yes. As one of my favorite writers once said, we have no other way left but upward. Yes. And I hope more of our listeners and our friends would understand that very well. If you'll permit me, I'll just end my part with quoting From the article, once again, Dr. Rostuni said, to look to politics for the answer is the mark of the inferior mind. And he said, it's time to upgrade ourselves. It's interesting that he used that term, upgrade ourselves, in 1970, right before the judgment of God flunks us out of history.
1: Yes, I thought that was especially stinging. Do we want to be flunked out of history? So listeners, I encourage you to get the three-volume set, Faith in Action, and It's one of those things that you could read it from cover to cover, but because it's broken up into sections and such, I would invite you, if you're going to do something kind of interesting, go to the essays that were written in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and ask yourself, wait a minute, did he write this yesterday? Is this? I mean, isn't that just what we were talking about? And so God gave us a prophet, one who could say, This is what God's word says, and if you obey, this is what you see, and if you disobey, this is what you see. And use it as a guideline and an instruction, because once the law of God is in your heart and you're operating that way, self-consciously and deliberately, you really won't have to worry about what's the next thing that's going to come up, because you'll already be oriented to what does God say.
0: One thing Dr. Rushney pointed out and I'll conclude with this is that you know when Paul writes in Romans that the just shall live by faith he points out that he's not saying the just are saved by faith but that those who are saved by God's grace live by faith and the very term terms righteousness and justice are used interchangeably but they definitely imply living according to a particular standard. And in this case, it's the standard of God's law word.
1: Indeed it is. So go to calcedon.edu. There's lots of resources there. Then there's calcedonstore.com, where you can purchase the volumes that I talked about. But make yourself a perpetual student and know that if this message and other things we've talked about in the past resonate with you, There are lots of other people that it also resonates with. And I invite you to write to us, ask us questions. We might be able to point you in a direction of people already operating in your area that you might find true fellowship with and suggest things that you would like to know more about so we can tackle those as well. Because Charles, you comment on this. That's the reason we do it. We don't do it just to hear ourselves talk. If if you and I wanted to just talk to each other, we wouldn't have to do a podcast to do it.
0: No, and I hope people don't assume that we're just about uh, selling books for the Calcedon Foundation. Because the fact is, because of the seriousness of this mission and Dr. Rustuni's work, uh, you can read all of his books online for free. So uh, it's, it's helpful. You can get the three-volume set that uh, Andrea referred to. You can get it in Kindle format. Or you can go to the calcedon.edu website and uh, you can look through all of these books online.
1: All right, listeners, thanks for joining us. As always, out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how to be in touch. And we look forward to having you join us next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.